This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. This week, is Boris going to limp on? Plus, why is the Rwandan government taking our asylum seekers? And finally, can AI take on the art world? First up. In her cover piece this week, Katie Balls writes that although Boris Johnson believes he can survive the Partygate scandal, he has some way to go until he's safe. While in his column, James Forsyth writes about why the Tories have a summer of discontent ahead of them. They both join us now. Katie, a lot of our listeners will have seen Boris Johnson's apology in the Commons this week. Uh, But after that, he addressed a private meeting of Tory MPs. From what you've heard about the meeting, what was his tone like then? So, as one MP described to me in terms of this meeting... Boris Johnson gave an opening address and then it rolled out to questions from MPs and it was much more election rally type speech that he opened with and actually he did not mention Partygate once. So in what was meant to be and in a way had been pitched and briefed to the various papers of the weekend as Boris Johnson reaching out to his party, it was in some ways but the message he was trying to give was stick with us, we're going to win the next election and we've got lots of good things and he did this call and respond where he said, you know, who would you rather have in charge of the economy? Rishi Sunak, Rachel Reeves, who would you rather have in charge of borders? Priti Patel, Yvette Cooper. Now, the correct answer in both of these is the Tory minister, in case listeners were wondering. And it went from there to the Q&A, where he did get questions about parties. But I think the fact he started in this um, tribal Tory way, for some, boosted morale and the mood, but for others made them doubt the sincerity or how seriously he was taking the issue of his fine when you contrast it with his dress in the chamber. So what is then his his vision for winning the next election other than you don't want the other guy well i think we've seen in terms of the shake-up in downing street and as i say in the cover piece this week there is a new team around boris johnson part of this is drawing them closer to mps in terms of having an mp as head of policy an mp as chief of staff but generally speaking i think you look at recent policies such as the announcement that you'll send migrants trying to cross the channel to rwanda to be processed the plan to privatize channel four the plan this week uh, which james hill goes into further detail in the magazine to um, launch you know, a table of shame about those civil servants who haven't gone back to the office yet there's ultimately conservative policies which are particularly aimed at the right of the party and try to remind people this is a conservative government. James you start your column this week by saying that midterm unpopularity is a given in British politics so is Boris's popularity plunge just something to be expected? I think the worrying thing for him is that normally governments are unpopular in midterm because they've done all the unpopular stuff early on and then you go for a period of unpopularity and then if you've got it right you know, everything comes right just in time for the next election. I mean, the worry for the Tories is that partly because of COVID, partly because I think Boris Johnson wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do once he won that big majority, other than kind of finish the Brexit process, 
The Tories haven't done that. You know, it's only just this month that they've raised taxes. They've raised taxes in the middle of a parliament. And the Tories are behind in the polls now when we're about to go into a period where for at least the next six months or so, you are going to find households having less and less money to spend every month because prices are rising and wages are not keeping up with inflation. So I think that is the worry. I think the other worry is that they have ducked some difficult decisions and so we're not going to get the benefit from them before the next election. You know, the most obvious of these is planning reform. This was the one big supply-side idea that the government had and because they didn't do it straight away and because Boris Johnson used up lots of his political capital of his own side over Covid and lockdowns, you then had a situation where there was a backbench revolt led ironically by Andrew Griffiths who is now uh, running the number 10 policy unit. And so they totally backed away from the idea. So you're not going to get any kind of economic boon from planning reform before the next election. And so I think that's why it is different from the kind of usual midterm blues. And Katie, James mentioned there a lot of the the public discontent at the moment, the Tories behind in the polls. We've got the cost of living crisis getting worse and worse and worse. And yet why is it then that Boris Johnson seems to feel a, a bit more secure in his position now than he did a few months ago? Is it, is it just because that some of the shine has perhaps come off Rishi Sunak? I think that's a big factor in it. Ultimately, I think you could say the situation has got worse for Boris Johnson than it was three months ago. Yet three months ago, there was a day when it really seemed as though they were about to hit 54 letters of no confidence. So Ukraine is one factor partly because it bought Boris Johnson time. It took attention away from party gates. There was a period where Tory MPs could remember what it was like to live in a world where you didn't have party gate being an issue every hour of every day and every interview. And they started thinking, oh, well, actually, if we can get to that, we can stick with Boris Johnson. But I think despite the fact that Tory MPs, the official line when they give interviews is that now is not the time for a leadership contest because of Ukraine. I think the bigger factor is, as you touch on, the fact that the most obvious person to step in, if things went really, really wrong for Boris Johnson, was Rishi Sunak means that the fact that the chances popularity has plummeted for various reasons and also that he received a fixed penalty notice however fair that fixed penalty notice was that's people don't think it was fair does mean that he is no longer the candidate to do that and you look across the field of potential leadership candidates and it starts to look like a very unpredictable leadership contest. Even Sajid Javid seen as a fairly safe pair of hands. Well, ultimately, he's come out and said that he used to be a non-dom. So do you want to put him in number 10? That brings some of the risk that we just saw Rishi Sunak have through association with his wife and her non-dom status. And then you have Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, very popular at the moment, but that is being judged purely in his defence brief. What is Ben Wallace's view when it comes to work and pensions? How would he navigate that? We don't, we haven't tested these figures. And then someone such as Liz Truss, who I think three months ago people thought, well, the final runoff could be Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss, but Rishi Sunak would probably win. Well, if Liz Truss is now the front runner, there are lots of people in the party who would rather stick with Boris Johnson, regardless of whether or not they like him. Lots of them don't, because they really don't want Liz Truss to be Prime Minister. James, there's an intriguing part in your column when you, where you say that a cabinet minister and a pair of senior backbenchers have both separately confided to you in the past week that they think the party might need to spend some time in opposition to map out a new agenda what should we make of that? And is that sort of common thinking amongst the Tories at this stage? I don't think it's common thinking yet, but I mean, the Tories have been in power for 12 years now. And I think that they are not quite yet clear what they want their agenda to be now. 
I think it's striking how little of a public service reform agenda they have, for example, at the moment. And I think the Tories are also struggling to make sense of... uh, The Tories, at the last election, gained a kind of nation... They became a kind of national party, you know, as as, as Michael Gove said in that speech after, after the Tories won their majority, you know, and it, this wasn't entirely accurate. But the Durham Miners Ghana and the Notting Hill Carnival will both now take place in Tory constituencies. But I think in part because they represent so many seats in such a wide geographical spread, they are kind of struggling to find an offer that appeals to all of them. You know, it, it, you talk to lots of Tory MPs in southern seats or people who went campaigning in Chesham and Amersham, and they say, well, hang on a second, be careful about levelling up because lots of our traditional Tory voters in the south think that levelling up means taking money from the from the south and giving it to the north, and they don't like the sound of that. So I, I think there is, there, is a, there is a Tory identity struggle going on at the moment. And then I think the other thing which is happening is it is just quite clear that politics is going to be very, very uphill running for the Tories over the next few years. You know, the IMF says that next year the UK economy is only going to grow by 1.2%. I mean, that is that is a really, really scrotic rate of growth. And I think you just add all these things up and, you know, add up all of the little scandals that the Tories have been caught in. Look at the one that's caused the Wakefield by-election and all that. You know, and there just is a feeling that the Tory party is tired at the moment. So, Katie, even if Boris Johnson thinks, as you as you quote in your column, that this is the beginning of the end of the party gate scandal. We know there's still further police investigations to, to go and possibly more fines for the Prime Minister. The, the cover image we've had for the issue this week is of Boris Johnson as the, the, the Black Knight in, in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, sort of in, in denial about how much damage is being done to his, his libs as they're being lobbed off. Do you do you think that number ten are in denial about about Partygate and the potential it has to still get much worse even now? Well, I think those around Boris Johnson, particularly the new team, realise they've come into a very serious situation. But ultimately, it comes down to how you view it. And I think there's plenty of people, and I include Boris Johnson in this. He ultimately think there are bigger things to focus on, and. <laughs> In a way, if Tory MPs want to move, they should do so. If not, you should let the Prime Minister govern. I think there are a few factors that could mean that it is not the beginning of the end of Partygate, but the beginning of the end of Boris, which would effectively be a situation where you have more fines, but I think particularly the fine to watch out for, I think... Boris Johnson, I don't think this will happen, but if Boris Johnson's fine for a party in the Down Street flat, I think that's particularly problematic. And when you had a meeting of MPs on Tuesday evening, there were two hostile questions, one about the vote this week, but the other was saying, Prime Minister, can you confirm that there was no socialising that night in the flat, it was just a work event? And he, he said, you know, yes. So I think that if it turns out that he is fined for socialising in the flat, that is seen as particularly bad amongst Tory MPs. I I think that would lead to some letters. I also think you've got the Sue Gray report, which people expect to be pretty damning. And also you have the local election. So I almost think the first two are the ones that have the potential to be more problematic, just because local elections tend to be able to be spun in various ways that you can start to see how you can say, oh, we had one success there and that's the red wall. So ignore everything else. And uh, finally, then, actually, a question for both of you. So I, I've made uh, a bet with a, a spectator colleague and I, I made the bet in December of last year, and I bet that in a year's time, Boris Johnson would still be Prime Minister. Am I going to win my bet? 
I mean, I would say right now is more likely than not that he is still prime minister in a year. I think we have seen repeatedly that MPs often walk back from the brink. No one really wants to be the person to oust Boris Johnson, even if lots of Tory MPs would like Boris Johnson to be ousted. And you start to think, well, what is it actually going to take? Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom a few months ago was a fixed penalty notice would be what it takes. Well, that's come and gone. Maybe it will be three more of those. <laughs> But I think you get to a point where you start to wonder, I, th- I think people are going to find excuses not to do it. And in that time, you're starting to see Boris Johnson moving the agenda forward with his new team, things like the Rwanda policy. And, and I do wonder if that means that more likely than not, obviously you can't predict he will be in place in a year's time. And James? I think one of the striking things about Boris Johnson is that, that very rational people, when they discuss Boris Johnson, talk about the role of luck, that, that he is lucky in a way that, that, that other politicians are not. And that, you know, that, 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 that kind of somehow fortune smiles on them. And this is, this is, these are people who are normally quite scientific in the way that they talk about politics. But they do talk about kind of a luck when it comes to Boris Johnson. And, and, and it is certainly true that he has survived a whole slew of things that would have finished off other politicians. I, I mean, whether he can survive this, I think, is, 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 yeah, I think the jury is still out on that one. But a, an interesting point made to me when I, when I said this to, to one cabinet minister who's very sympathetic to Boris Johnson, I said, no, 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 he's not lucky. He's lucky because he sticks around. And their argument was that Boris Johnson's luck is because at a time when lots of other people might conclude that the situation is done for, they've got no choice but to resign, he stays. And this person said to me, look, the, the, the one ineluctable fact about this whole situation at the moment is that Boris Johnson is not going to resign. So the only way in which he's going to be removed is if people are prepared to force him out. And as Katie was just, just saying, and, and to borrow a phrase from another columnist, that Danny Finkelstein of the Times, you know, there is a market failure in political coups because if you are one of the people who leads this charge to try and get Boris Johnson out and it fails then you're probably quite unlikely to serve in his government. And also, you know, Tory you know, people still don't like regicides, even if, even if regicide is sometimes a necessary uh, a role in, the, in a political system. People don't like it and, and within a party. And so I think, I think that is his great advantage, is that he is going to stick there and he is just going to challenge other people to try and actively force him out. And for all the reasons... That, that Katie just outlined, you know, there there will be a reluctance. And I think also one other thing that Katie identifies in the cover story, which is right, is one of the reasons why Boris Johnson was in so much danger in January was that in crude terms, both wings of a Tory party, both the right and the left of a Tory party, were unhappy with Boris Johnson. And as Katie says, you know, that number 10 has made a concerted effort to get the right of the party, which is the bulk of the party, back on board. Well, sounds like you might be on to win your bet. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Katie and James. Next up, by now, many of us have heard the arguments behind the Home Office's plan to send migrants to Rwanda. But why is Rwanda up for this arrangement? Michaela Rong, the author of Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad, explores this question in this week's Spectator. And she joins us now along with the MP, Andrew Mitchell. Michaela, in your piece this week for The Spectator, you look at the new immigration arrangement between Rwanda and the UK. Can you start by explaining to listeners what Rwanda and its government stands to gain from this particular deal? I see it as part of a project by Rwanda, and it's been going on for quite a while, to present itself to the West as a radical, dynamic government that can solve 
the problems of its Western allies and sometimes its African allies. So on the one hand, it's been able to offer countries like uh, Britain and also Israel in the past and Denmark, you know, we will take your troublesome refugees, we will deal with your immigration problem. And on the other hand, it's also been extremely quick to send out peacekeepers across especially African hotspots, African war zones, where the West just doesn't want to send their own fighters, especially in the wake of Afghanistan. No Western government is going to be sending its soldiers to fight and die in Africa. So these are sort of two areas, two key areas, which are of huge concern to the West, but also to African allies. And I think that's where Rwanda really feels that it can win a very high profile, it can can kudos, and it can sort of create goodwill around the continent. And Andrew, you wrote an article for Conservative Home this week, voicing your objections to the government's Rwanda plan. Could you briefly explain for our listeners what your main objections are? Well, I'm, I'm in a slightly sort of odd position because I don't agree with Michaela's analysis of Rwanda, but I am against the scheme. I think it's a, a bad idea. I don't think it'll work. I think it'll be unbelievably expensive at a time when the British taxpayer is under very considerable stress. I think it's impractical. I think, arguably, you know, it's Britain outsourcing its uh, duties under the 1951 convention to another country. So so I think it's wrong in principle, and I don't think it'll work, and I think it's unbelievably expensive. So, So that is my main reason not for wanting it to go ahead. I also think that there are four things you have to do if you want to resolve this appalling crisis in the channel. And actually, I give Priti Patel high marks for her determination to resolve it. I just don't think this one will work. And actually, there is no substitute for the four key things you have to do. First of all, you have to employ far more officials to process the claims of people who come here. And Rwanda does asylum claims in three months. There's a sort of whole legal fandango circus that goes on in Britain, which prolongs the process. But we need to streamline that and make it fair and more speedy, firstly. Secondly, we have to heal the quite atrocious relationship at the moment between the government of France and our own government. This is the country, our main neighbour. It's the other side of the channel. We need at least, preferably, their active support, if not their passive acquiescence in resolving this problem. Thirdly, we need safe and legal routes. There aren't any. You know, There's a misunderstanding about this. There is a safe and legal route if you are coming with permission from Afghanistan and there's a safe and legal route for Ukrainians but there aren't any other safe and legal routes so by definition when you arrive on the shore in Britain you are illegal so we need to address that and the final thing we need to do is to address the failings now of the 1951 conventions which Britain was one of the architects of setting up to deal with migration with with climate change migration now likely to be massively on the rise in in the future and the conventions in 1951 being completely out of date because of mass travel and globalization we need a new international agreement and Britain with its role at the UN ought to be in a very good position to do that. And when I suggested this this to Boris on the 25th of July last year, he said it was an excellent idea, but nothing's happened. So so those are the four things. You can't really get round them that you have to do if you want to resolve this problem. In that same article, Andrew, you, you wrote that the history of the last 28 years in Rwanda is one of, quote, progress, recovery and reconstruction. What do you think of... The human rights violations, many of them recent human rights 
violations that Michaela does highlight in her article. Are you not guilty of the ahistoricism that Michaela highlights in her piece? Well, although we authors must stick together, and Michaela has written a very interesting book, I don't agree with the two central propositions in it, although it's an extremely good read. And and also the point I would make about Rwanda is that it came back from the quite extraordinary barbarity of a genocide that killed nearly a million people in 90 days. And it has become now a stable country, which has further to go. Um, I would agree that there is not enough political space and there is not enough media space, but I think progress is being made on both parts. And when you come to talking about human rights, I remember an incident in a restaurant in Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda, at a time when an election was going on. And I said to the young waitress who was serving, how are you going to vote in this election? And she said, I'm going to vote for Paul Kagame. And I said, are you just doing that because everyone else is going to do it? And she looked at me and she said, no. She said, because tonight when I walk home, I can walk through the streets of Kigali knowing that I am safe and I won't be raped. It is Paul Kagame who has brought stability back to this country and I'm going to support him. And after all, if you've lived through the horrors of the terrible genocide in Rwanda, then the first human right that you care most about is, is, the, is the right to, to life. And that, you know, the president and his government, they have restored that, along with quite remarkable rates of growth, quite remarkable rates of health, uh, particularly amongst mothers and young children. And I think we should respect the progress that has been made. And obviously, as a friend of the country, urge them to make greater progress in the areas which need it. Michaela, I'm sure you want to respond to that. Yes, I mean, one thing when it comes to the issue of stability, because I think people do always see Paul Kagame as being a, a force for stability. I think his leadership has exported instability. Just at the moment, the M23, which is a, is a militia that operates in the eastern Congo, and which has in the past, you know, it's been demonstrated that there has been Rwandan support for their activities, is on the rampage again in eastern Congo. And they're, they're certainly the Congolese believe that the Rwandans are behind that activity. This is a country that has repeatedly invaded Congo and has had very tense and bad relations with Uganda in the past, only recently reopened its border to Uganda, similarly has terrible relations with Burundi and Tanzania, very tense relations. But if I can just return to the human rights issue, one, one of the problems, it seems to me, is, you know, I agree with Andrew that he says, you know, we need to have a root and branch reform of the Refugee Convention. I think, you know, it's awful because at the moment we force people to pretend to be asylum seekers when at least, you know, a, a large part of their motivation will obviously be to better themselves. So then they would count as economic migrants. And it's impossible to separate those two strands often. But one of, one of the key things, we know that a lot of the refugees turning up and trying to cross in the small boats. They're from Syria, they're from Eritrea, they're from Sudan. So they are fleeing repressive and frightening governments. They're from Afghanistan as well. And if you are sending them to a country whose government has a track record of being extremely militaristic, uh, I would describe it as a police state where you have endless human rights reports being published by the likes of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, 
you know, Reporters Without Borders, Freedom House, and in fact, where, you know, we have the the U- UK's own delegates at the Universal Periodic Review of, of Rwanda, where in Geneva, where everyone's human rights record is going over, the UK delegates were, were calling out Rwanda for extrajudicial killings, for disappearances, for torture and detention. So, you know, if you're going to be sending people from repressive governments and thinking that they're going to agree to to get on a flight and then go and move to Rwanda and settle there. This is just ridiculous. So what we're talking about is deterrence. And it seemed to me that what was very striking about the uh, correspondence between Rycroft and Patel was that the word deterrent came up so very often. So what, what we're trying to do is scare the bejesus out of people coming across the channel. And that's that's not a very, that's a pretty distasteful uh, situation. So I, I agree with what you say about Matthew Rycroft's letter to Pretty Patel. I think that that is right. Uh, I think that it's very important to, and also on the M23 and the DRC, I mean, although I'm sure Michaela would regard me as an unashamed apologist for the regime, it, I was the minister who stopped direct budget support because of the activities of the M23 in the early spring of 2012. So, so you know, that the, the Rwanda believed that the actions they were taking were about their national security. All sovereign states take actions in respect of their national security. But, you know, Michaela, there's not much between us on on trying to make it clear that they shouldn't be supporting the M23. But on the subject of human rights, let me be very clear. I fundamentally disagree with what Michaela has said. And here's the reason why. More recently, Rwanda has been willing to take these people in the most desperate circumstances off the coast of Libya. And they are they are Africans, and Rwanda has given them a new start. Then people have been sent, thanks to Rwanda, from the dreadful jeopardy off the off the off, off the coast of the Mediterranean there, but down to Rwanda. And there are stories of them starting new lives and, and making good progress. Secondly, I have always felt the profoundest respect for the Rwandan government because when what George Bush, President Bush, described as a genocide was taking place in Darfur and women were being raped and abused, children were being killed, the most appalling things were happening in Darfur. Not long after the genocide, Rwanda sent one third of its army to keep the peace and to stop the people of Darfur going through the terrible processes that citizens of Rwanda had, had been through and lost soldiers in keeping the peace there as well. So so I, I do think that there are two sides to the argument that is put about Rwanda. They are making progress and we need to encourage them to make more progress. Okay, did you want to respond to that or you can ask another question? Um, I, I, I see things very differently. I mean, for me, I, I think the problem is I regard Rwanda as a dictatorship. And I think dictatorships do not reform from within. They do not become more liberal. They do not become more tolerant of human rights. And I think, you know, what you've seen is a narrowing down of control in, in the Rwandan government. And you've seen more and more power focusing on President Paul Kagame, less and less tolerance for dissent, less and less willingness to, to allow civil society to, to bloom, to allow people to express themselves in the media, in YouTube. I mean, you know, recently we saw a whole bunch of people who had gone on to YouTube, just ordinary civilians to express their dissatisfaction, various complaints about COVID regulations in, in Kigali. And they've been prosecuted and given really, really hefty prison fines. I mean, in some cases, 15 years in jail. So I don't see this as a country going in the right direction. I see it as a country going in the 
in in the wrong direction in that I think you know when you have an authoritarian leader he he just gathers power towards him and he is less and less inclined to liberalize to free up society. Andrew just to finish on do you think this could potentially backfire for Kagami if stories start to emerge of migrants who've been sent to Rwanda being mistreated? I think the Rwandan government is trying to help the British government out of a problem. The In my view, the analysis of what to do about that problem is wrong in Britain. And I think Rwanda's been asked to help as they helped the Israeli government and as they've been in discussions with the Danish government. The problem is, though, that as the Israel experiment showed, which Israel subsequently closed down, the people who went to, uh, were sent to Rwanda, started the long journey to go back to the place they wanted to go to in the first place. And, And in the end, unless you address that issue, I suspect that no matter how generous and kind the Rwandan government is in return for substantial uh, sums of money from the British taxpayer, they won't actually be able to address the problem that the British government hopes that their participation is addressing. Thank you, Michaela and Andrew. And finally, Sean Thomas writes in this week's magazine about how some artificial intelligence programmes appear to have become rather good at painting. But what does this mean for the future of art? He joins us now along with Lucas Nora, the organiser of the Alan Turing Institute's AI and Arts Group, and Professor Stefano Ehrman of Stanford, whose research has made much of this technology possible. Sean, in your article you write about artworks that have been created by artificial intelligence. I think that some people listening to this podcast might think that if a pieces made by a computer, it can't really be considered art. Do you agree with that? And I mean, are these AI creations, are they any good? Uh, oh, they're definitely good. Some are poignant, some are funny, some are eccentric, some are just, are just lavishly pretty, uh, often, in a, in, often in a slightly unusual way. You know, there seems to be a kind of signature in the work of, of Dali, and maybe similar programs where you, you, you can say, oh, that is not quite human. Maybe it's in the uncanny valley where something is very nearly human, but there's still something slightly off. But um, it, it, it's so close to art as to being indistinguishable from art, human art. So I'd say, yes, it is art. And Stefano, you are an expert in AI working at Stanford. Can you explain to listeners in layman's terms how... AI goes about creating a work of art? Sure. The way these models are performed is essentially they've been, they've been looking at a lot of existing images. They get a sense of what these images look like, what, what's the structure, what kind of content they have, what kind of colors they need to use. And then uh, a, a user provides some description of the kind of image they want, which could either be through text or it could be a sketch and then the model will try to generate an image that is similar to the input provided by the user but has the right uh, structure or is in some sense similar to one of the images that it has seen during training. And uh, Lucas you're uh, the organizer of AI and arts at the Alan Turing Institute. Could you tell us a bit about what ways AI could become a tool for artists and, and a way to experiment perhaps with, with new artistic forms? I mean, is it, is it starting to redefine perhaps what it is to be an artist, do you think? 
Sure. So the thing is, AI is very buzzwordy and we see it from the media in a way that AI is an artist or can it be an artist? And it always gets to see, sit on one side in, in, in a boxing ring, I would to say, and even what comes out in Sean's article as well, there's this replacement issue that AI tends to replace some human factors in our society. I think there's a lot more to AI as a mediator or facilitator where AI can be actually used as a co-producer of art, but not just art. We also use AI in the creative industries generally to develop games, for example. We use it in the heritage industry to monitor um, castle walls, for example, and see changes over time. So it's a nifty helping tool at the moment, but we also need to think at the Alan Turing about AI and cultural policy, because having AI as a creator on one side also means we need to think of IP laws and patents, for example, and we need to consider what does it mean for a computer to have creative abilities and can we attribute creativity in that sense to a machine? So these are questions we are trying to answer, not just from the perspective of AI as an artist, but way more of, of AI implemented in the creative industries and the society itself. And Sean, as Stefano's pointed out, these AI creations are, are, are taking a lot of information from the internet and then using that to create new works of art. Do you think that art is ever able to be original or, or is it always quite derivative? Well, uh, it, it, it's a fundamental question. And I've seen artists online already complaining that the, the, the DAL E2 has just taken a million images and is combining them and you know, jiggling them around to make new art. And that's not creativity because it is drawing on the, uh, you know, the original works of, of human artists. But then that is what any human artist does when he learns to become an artist. He goes and looks at loads of paintings and drawings and he goes to college and he draws in all these influences, the anxiety of influence. He gains something from Picasso or whoever and he synthesizes that in his mind into his style. So you can really just say that Dahl E too is doing the same thing, synthesizing a style or a billion styles, which makes it frightening, from seeing a trillion works. I can't see much difference in the process. And, and Stefano, uh, Sean describes the advances made in AI technology uh, culminating in GPT-3, which he says is reasonably capable of almost anything, from writing music to articles and so on. Uh, taking into account the, the rate of improvement of this technology, I mean, how far do you think it could go? I think there's been really astonishing progress in the last few years in the capabilities of AI and machine learning systems to generate content. I mean, you mentioned GPT as a system that can generate text, uh, you know, DALI, DALI 2 uh, systems that can generate images. Mm, you know, we have generative models that can create music. Uh, we're starting to see good results in systems that can generate videos. I think, uh, you know, the progress has been astonishing. Like if I look back at 2014, you know, we were able to generate tiny little images in black and white and very low resolution that could barely resemble, you know, something real. And in just over less than 10 years, now we have images that are hard to, to distinguish and we're running into these issues of trying to figure out, is this image real or not? 
uh, is this a fake? Like, can this be possibly be generated by a machine? So I, I think the progress has been astonishing and uh, it, it will continue to, to get better. Uh, I don't see us reaching a plateau anytime soon. I think there are still capabilities that are missing. You know, it, these systems are not still not great at common sense. There are many things that are very easy for us as humans that these systems are not capable of and, and, and it shows. Uh, but I think we're making progress and I think, uh, and I'm excited to see what's going to come next. And Lucas, Sean's piece starts with four images, four Kandinsky-esque images. Two are actually by Kandinsky and two are by AI. Do you think, I mean, they're obviously abstract paintings. Do you think it's easier for AI to recreate abstract work rather than, say, portraiture? That's an interesting one. So... I think a machine itself or the computer sees inherently different than what humans do, for example. So when you feed images um, to GPT-3, for example, when you feed text to GPT-3, that gets then translated into images or what you have with learning certain styles with an autoencoder, for example, which would be one means of image similarity calculations. The machine sees differently, so it you can't really say that it would be easier to learn a Kandinsky, for example, abstract art than to learn something from the pre-Raphaelites, because the computer has a completely different way of, of consuming these, these artworks than the human eye would, for example. We end with 3D, but the computer sees in way more high dimensions, as we as we say, than humans do. And this is the next thing with such algorithms. They are black box algorithms, as, as deep learning approaches are. We can explain post hoc, so after we've seen the outcome, what the computer might have done. But as with these approaches, we can't really explain a priori the output of the machine and how it will learn these features, for example. So there's a lot that still needs to be done in terms of transparency and explainability. But I dare to say that for the computer itself, it doesn't necessarily make a difference if this is a Kandinsky or a pointillistic painting by Seurat, for example. One thing people are missing is that uh, the creators of, of Dali 2 have made it deliberately bad at interpreting human faces and bodies. So this is a built-in restriction because they're so scared of its power to make deep fake human faces, deep fake bodies. You can imagine what with a computer program this powerful, you can make a deep face of a famous politician doing something absolutely terrible in, in, in a pornographic way, and you could change history. So they, have, they've met, they haven't trained it on many faces, and they've really not trained it on many human bodies, which is why it's very bad at human faces and bodies, which is why you see so many good images of astronauts and animals and cartoons, because they're not humans. And if you, if you prompt it to do a human doing something, it, it often it's terrible. But that's not a problem with the program it's a problem with it's a deliberate restriction they've put on it to make it less powerful and less dangerous until they understand it better but surely that restriction could quite easily be lifted oh god yeah and you know open ai seem to be quite responsible well i can imagine a less responsible government or company building a dali 2 without those restrictions you know we can all guess a regime that might do that and then, yeah, then it's terrifying. You can have deep fakes of humans and they're going to look completely convincing. And you can put them in some extremely invidious positions and change history. Yeah, it's terrifying, really. That bit is terrifying. And uh, finally, actually, a, a question for, for all three of you. Have you seen an artwork created 
uh, with artificial intelligence, or I should say by artificial, by artificial intelligence, that you have loved so much you would want to buy it and hang it on, hang it on your wall? Or has that moment still not arrived yet? Depends on how much. <laughs> yeah, again, it's like non-fungible tokens in a way. Isn't it? If you could say this is the only example ever going to be made, and then, then, then yeah, I think I can, so I've seen images which are really poetic and ravishing, and I think, yeah, I'd like that. But if it can just be, you know, maybe if it would have no value if, it could be, if they could make trillions of them. I don't know. But it's getting there, yes. I have not bought it, but I've definitely like saved. I mean, I've worked a lot on these kind of models and I've, I've generated samples from them and, and played around with them a lot in my research. And occasionally we've generated things that look really nice and, and good enough for me to save. And in, in digital format, sometimes I've printed them out and used them as backgrounds. So yeah, I haven't bought one, but I, I could imagine myself buying one for the, for the, for the right price. I think that they're... They're amazing. I'm the same. I mean, if I would have endless money um, or endless Bitcoins, um, of course I would buy it. It's always a question of the price tag. But what I appreciate about AI-created um, art is it's mesmerizing. So there are pieces out there that are not trying to mimic human creativity, but that have their own machine creativity, where you feed a whole MoMA collection, for example, and the machine just remixes and creates new pieces out of there. And they're just dreamy and, and, and aesthetically pleasing to look at. So I'm absolutely up for that if um, something would come with my price tag to get it in the future, yeah. Thank you, Sean, Lucas and Stefano. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we've discussed. And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week.